If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask that you open it to the book of Romans, chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. And you can find Romans, chapter 7, on page 887 of that Bible. We have said goodbye to another year and hello to another one in its stead. We continue to spiral around the sun. I was reminded of the book of Ecclesiastes. In the opening verses, the author writes this, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its currents the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And here we are again, everything in circles. The author of Ecclesiastes didn't even know that the earth went around the sun. Imagine if he knew that. Just another one. The wind goes around the earth. The streams flow to the sea, but the sea is never full. Everything happens, and it happens, and it happens. What have we accomplished this year? Here we are. You're all still sinners in need of mercy and grace, forgiveness, peace, which means basically we are right where we should be. We have accomplished probably very little in this year in the grand scheme of things. If it helps you, you can remember that to circumnavigate the sun, the earth travels some 591 million miles. So I don't know if you keep a total of steps, but that seems like a lot. We've returned to where we started, which is somewhat appropriate as we now return to the book of Romans where we left off in September. We come to the seventh chapter. The seventh chapter of the book of Romans is a difficult and challenging chapter for any of a number of reasons. It's very difficult to figure out precisely what Paul is talking about. It's filled with scrutiny and discussion uh, in the scholarly world and, and even in pulpits all around the world as we try to figure out what exactly Paul is saying about the law and about sin and about how we as Christians approach it. Today I want to just give us a framework to look at this discussion through as we go through these first six verses. And the main objective that I have here today is simply to relieve a tension that I think a lot of us feel when we hear Paul talk about the law. When Paul talks about the law, there seems to be this sort of tension in between him saying, On the one hand, we have this law that God has given to us that Christians are not to use anymore. The law is not for you. The law is not there so that you might be saved. It's not there even for your sanctification, as we will talk about today. So on the one hand, he says those commandments are not binding on you. Those those precepts are not binding on you anymore. And then on the other hand, For those of you who have read Paul, you know well that Paul is not just telling you the things that are, but he's telling you what you ought to do. There are plenty of times when Paul says, people who do this and this and this and this cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
People who are divisive, people who are filled with sexual impurity, they they live by the flesh. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are to be people who are filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that you ought to have. He He goes over the top sometimes in commanding people to do things. So why does he say this list of commands is no longer binding on you, but this list of commands is? Grace has done away with these, but here, here are some other ones. Seems like what Paul is doing is replacing law with law. I hope that at least part of our discussion this morning helps to understand or helps to bring an understanding of what Paul is actually speaking about this morning. To do that, let's go to Romans chapter 7. We'll read these first six verses and just talk about three different things this morning. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of our God. The first thing I would like to bring to your mind this morning is that the path of the law is foreign to Christians. The path of the law is foreign to Christians. Paul begins this section by appealing to the understanding of the Romans. He says, I know I'm speaking to people who know the law. This doesn't necessarily mean that he thinks that he is speaking to Jewish people, but he is certainly speaking to Christians who are well-versed in the law. You can tell by the way that Paul writes going throughout the book of Romans that he thinks a lot of these Roman Christians. He expects that they will follow and track with a number of different arguments that he's using, and he uses the Old Testament, specifically the Pentateuch, more in the book of Romans than he does anywhere else. So there's every indication that he thinks highly of these people and that they will be able to follow what he's talking about. And so, To give a picture of what he's talking about here, he gives this illustration or this analogy. Now, there is a warning that we ought to have when we come to this illustration or analogy. If you read through it and then read through Paul's application and you try to do a detailed sort of this thing means this and this, like the first husband is the law, the second husband is Christ, and we are the woman who is married to her. Like, once you start doing that, you're going to find that the analogy is going to break down really quickly, Okay. It just it doesn't make a lot of sense. After all, it's not the law that dies. It's we who die, but we are the ones who marry Christ, who actually was the one who died. And so there's a whole bunch of confusion that can go on when you really want to press it hard. Nevertheless, the analogy does hold, and it's helpful for us. The analogy is pretty easy. There's a woman who marries a man. Even if he divorces her, she is not freed from her marriage to him. So that if she goes and marries another man, while that other man lives, she is an adulteress. Nevertheless, if he dies, 
she is free, and she can go and marry whomever she might want. Now, remember, this is an analogy. It's not really about marriage, and it's not about the law that concerns marriage. The image contains two important facts for us today. First, Paul mentions that it is only by death that the first husband, and by death of the first husband, that she is allowed to remarry. Secondly, connected to the first, that she is found to be full of sin. She is found to be sinful and an adulteress if she tries to keep both husbands. So if she is still married to the first one while taking on a second one. Paul, I think, is at least clear in wanting to know one thing. If we are married to the law, and I think that that's at least part of what he is saying, if you are bound to the law, maybe married is too strong of a word, but if you are bound to the law, then you cannot be bound to Christ. If you are bound to Christ, then you have died to the law, and you are no longer bound to the law. But you cannot be bound to both. You can't be found as a Christian and as one who follows the law. The path of the law is foreign to the Christian. They do not walk along the path of the law. We do well to remind ourselves of whom Paul is speaking to. The Romans aren't people who stand at the fork of the road between the law and Christ and are asking for Paul's opinion on which way they ought to walk. They're not saying, well, we've got the law over here and Moses and that sounds good and it sounds right, but we've got Jesus over here and, and Paul, which way should we go? They are people that Paul has addressed, not only as Christians, but as fairly strong Christians. He believes that they have walked down the right path. He has very little instruction for them on on how to tighten up their lives. This isn't the Corinthian bunch who don't understand what's going on, or the Galatians. The Romans seem to have things together. He gives no indication at all that he is concerned about where they stand. In other words, what Paul is doing is encouraging and strengthening them. He's not evangelizing them. That means that they already have down the most basic of all Christian convictions that was found everywhere in the New Testament, found everywhere in the church from the very earliest days of the church. The law cannot save. This isn't a debate anywhere in the New Testament. This doesn't come up anywhere. Nowhere is there a group of people saying, What you really need to do, I mean, Jesus did some nice things, but what you really need to do is put your hope and trust in doing what the law requires. We have a way to talk about those kind of people. They're called Jews. They're not Christians. Christians never thought that. The easiest place to find this is to go to a book like Galatians, because the Galatians have traveled down the road of Christ. But for some reason, because people have come in and agitated them, because people have led them astray, they actually put the car in reverse and started to back up the on-ramp. And Paul stopped them and said, you guys are fools, what are you doing? You you can't do that. And in doing so, in chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, he gives the most straightforward, basic, core understanding of the gospel anywhere. He's speaking here, in a sense, to Peter, but also to the Galatians, where he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person who is defined by works of the law is not justified except by faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. When Paul writes that, I think every single person in Galatia believes that. I think the entire letter hangs on the fact that everyone agrees at that. I think even the people who are trying to lead the Galatians astray believe that. They might not be applying it correctly, but they believe it. So when Paul here talks about the law, he is not trying to talk about how the the Romans are to be saved. He is quite clearly talking about sanctification. What is the best way to walk forward? What is the way in which we are to be made holy? And in that sense, he still looks at the law and says, it's of no use to you. The law can't make you holy. Back in chapter 6 and verse 15, Paul begins the same discussion that we're kind of continuing here, where he says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? He says, yeah, yeah, I've, I've jettisoned the law, and what you're asking me is then if we've jettisoned the law, however can we have holiness? And Paul's going to argue, you can have holiness without the law. In chapter 7, he's going to change tack a little bit. Not only is he not now just saying, you don't need the law in order to be sanctified in the Lord. He's actually going beyond that and saying, the law is a hindrance to your holiness. The law is an absolute hindrance to your holiness. It will prevent you from ever gaining holiness. The path of the law is foreign to Christians. We cannot take it, and it does not help us. The question then that ought to smack us is why? Thus, point two. The end of the law is found in Christ. The end of the law is found in Christ. The meat of what Paul wants to say is found in verse six where he gives this sort of comparison between the new way and the old way, between the spirit and the written code. Let's talk, during this point at least, about the new way and the old way. What does Paul mean by new and old? I think that we're primed to think of new in terms of the same way we currently experience new things. If you go out and you buy a new car or you get a new phone, these things are new in a sense. They're iterations of things that we currently have. They're models, perhaps, that we didn't have before, but we do now. But that's not what Paul means by new. We tend to think of new things in terms of progress and things of moving forward, getting better, or something like that. But that's not exactly what Paul means by it. He means something almost totally and completely different. New and old are related to one another in the sense that the new has surpassed or completed finalized, or we might say fulfilled that which is old. The age of the Spirit is new because Christ himself has ended the age of the law. This is precisely what Jesus said he was doing at the very beginning of his ministry in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You ought to think of that fulfillment as I have not come to abolish them, to just get rid of them, I have come to bring them to their rightful conclusion. The idea is that Christ perfects the law. He brings it to its end, and so therefore we are now free from it. And it's here that I think it is important to have sort of a discussion about what we mean when we say the law, what Paul means when he talks here about the law, because it is confusing. We primarily think of the law in terms of its moral commands. 
you ought to do these things. You ought not to do that. There's no doubt that there are very few who would come to this passage and think that Paul is speaking of Roman law or speaking of laws in general as though we no longer have to pay attention to the laws of our country. But it is that tension that we've referred to at the very beginning. We are not to follow the moral law, we might say. Yet, Paul still gives us moral commands. How are these things so? One of the ways that this has been dealt with throughout church history is by sort of a tripartite division of the law. You can find this in almost all of the great confessions of the church, especially those really detailed confessions post-Reformation, whether it's the Westminster Confession, the, the Baptist Confession of 1689. Both of those things talk about how the law can be thought of in three distinct parts, a ceremonial or a cultic, a civic and a moral. The cultic was sort of this religious side of the law. It dictated how sacrifices were going to happen, what the priests were supposed to do, what the temple or the tabernacle was supposed to look like, how the people and when the people and why the people ought to come into the temple. The civic portion of the law dealt with the fact that Israel wasn't just a group of people who were there to worship God, but they were indeed a nation. So there are laws that dictate how we are to handle judges or legal requirements for this, that, or the other, punishments, etc. The moral law was, well, moral. It's just what it sounds like. This kind of division is perfectly fine. As a matter of fact, I think it is extraordinarily helpful. And if pressed on any sort of confession, I would gladly accept it for teaching purposes. But it is one thing to think that we can view the law in this way, and it is a completely separate thing to think that that's actually how the law exists. The law is not three different things sort of compacted together. You think of them like Legos, right? You can stack a green Lego, then a blue Lego, then a black Lego, and you can kind of pull them apart and look at it and piece it back together however you want to. But the law just frankly doesn't work like that. If you came to Paul and you asked him about that, I, I think honestly, he might not be confused, but I don't think that he would agree. It doesn't mean that it's not helpful. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to view the law like that. But I think that the law, instead of being viewed as like Legos that you can take apart and put back together, it's better to be viewed as a large tapestry woven from one string, one strand, that might give you a picture of three different things. But if you were to cut any one of those things out because it was all woven from one strand, the rest of it would fall apart. Take, for instance, the book of Leviticus. In chapter 20, the Lord goes to Moses and he says this, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. How are we supposed to pull that apart? It's clearly immoral to offer your child to Molech. That's clearly one of the things that he is saying. 
But that immorality is wrapped up in the fact that God will also, in a ceremonial way or in a, in a cultic way, turn his face away. You will not be acceptable before him anymore. And that in it of itself is wrapped up in the fact that you are to stone the man who does this in a civic manner, as a political reality. He is not to be acceptable in your presence anymore. All three of these things are bound together. So when Paul talks about keeping the law, he doesn't mean that you just keep the moral parts of the law. He is talking about the entirety of the law. What are we supposed to do, Paul says? Are we supposed to go back and to keep the law? Not just the food requirements, but all of the requirements of the law. It's all of one piece. You can't just pick up a piece of the law here and a piece of the law there. You can't just say, I'm going to keep the moral aspects of the law. What is moral? God here is, in Leviticus 20, is saying, it is not just immoral to offer your children to Molech. It is also immoral to allow your neighbor to do it. And you are to stone him. So Jesus brings in its fullness an end to the law. We see this most clearly, most clearly in the sacrifices. One of the strange things about the law as we go through any of Paul's writings is that he never mentions that the law has baked into it avenues whereby people can be forgiven for their sins in sacrifices. He never mentions it, which is a crazy, strange thing. Because during most of the time when Paul's writing, the temple still stands in Jerusalem. People still offer sacrifices. But he never talks about that. Because for him and for all the Christians that he's talking to, the sacrifice has already been made. The sacrifices have come to a close. Jesus is the end of the law. Thus, he is the end of the law, both in the morality and in the civic and in the cultic. The law is simply nothing that you can take on to make yourself holy. The end of the law is found in Christ. There is newness now. The old is past. You cannot, therefore, have Christ and have the law. If you have Christ, the law has come to an end. There is no reason to return to it. And there is, of course, one more reason. The externality of the law is futility for Christians. The fact that the law is not in us, the fact that the law is given to us, shows that it is futile to work for it. One of the comparisons in verse 6 is between the new way and the old way. The other is, what is that new way of? That new way is of the Spirit. The old way is of the written law. The law is simply a tool. Look at verse 5 again. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. I get up early on Sunday. I am super thankful that God has made caffeine. And not only has he made caffeine, but he has made caffeine with this wonderful little bean that flavors water so it doesn't taste like water anymore. It is a beautiful and a glorious thing, right? The law is caffeine for your sin. You go to the law and it awakens sin in you that you didn't even know was there. Paul is about to say in verses coming, I didn't even know what it was to covet until I heard do not covet. And my sin was like, oh, coveting, that sounds fun. Let's try that. 
It aroused it. It woke it up. The law is simply a tool for your sin to find more ways to sin. More commandments from God, it's more ways to show God I'm not going to do what he wants. Because it's a tool of sin, our sin is the very thing that gets to wield it. This is, by the way, precisely what Jesus meant when he talked about food regulations. In in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, And are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Outside neither makes you holy nor unholy. Following the regulations won't ever make you holy or unholy. They're just things that stand outside. It is your desire to do them that makes you holy or unholy. It is your desire to fulfill them that makes you holy or unholy. And what exists inside of us, outside of the Spirit of God working in us, is nothing but sinfulness and pride. You will never, of your own volition, desire to keep all of the law. And sure, you might desire to keep some of it, You might say, I really don't have any desire to take my kids and hand them over to Molech. After all, who's going to take care of the dishes in the morning? So you you might say, hey, I don't want to do that, but there's going to be plenty of other other laws that you look at and you're kind of like, eh, coveting I kind of like. It's fun to want other people's stuff. Maybe honoring your mother and your father. Maybe you're the kind of guy who really loves goats boiled in their mother's milk. I don't know what the issue is, but at some point in time, you're going to come upon laws that God has said, you cannot do this. And you're going to say, watch me. Because your heart is set against the nature of God. Our own desires and their very nature are sinful. So because the law is external to us, the law cannot make us desire what is right. It can't make us do what is right. It can't change our hearts. The things that come out of us are what defile us. They're always the things that make us evil. Yet, if we are given over to the Spirit of Christ, through the work of Christ, then it is no longer us, but it is the Spirit of God who works in us. So the push is internal. No longer is it just an external regulation sitting out there which cannot make us holy, which has no power to make us alive, but it is a spirit that works upon us, changing our heart, changing our desires, changing what we want to do, so that when we see the law, when we see what is good and right and true, we're actually striving to do so. Not an external code that we need to try and desire, but an internal desire that wells up in us. But what is even better about this is that even this is not of ourselves. While it is inside of us, it is because the Spirit is inside of us. It's an alien spirit. It's not ours. It was given to us by the work of Jesus Christ, but it is in us. 
So as the Spirit lodges with us, He changes us. He changes our desires. He changes our longings. Thus, we start to walk with Him. We seek to follow the paths that He treads on. We go where He goes. We are, as Paul would say, led by the Spirit. And you might want to say, can we not then have the Spirit and keep the law? The answer is, again, no, you can't. Because the Spirit is directly tied to and comes from the very work and person of Jesus Christ. The very Son sends forth the Spirit. Without the Son ascending to God, there is no giving of the Spirit. To have the Spirit is to exist down the path of Christ. It is to exist in the new age. You can't follow the old age and be in the new age. There's a saying that we give to busy people. You, you can't be in two places at once. Paul might say you can't be in two times at once. You can't be in the new age of the Spirit and the old age of the law. And again, you might ask, if we're just to be led by the Spirit, why does Paul turn around in so many places and give us these sort of external commands? Those commands didn't come from from my spirit being moved. It didn't come from, from my own good intentions and desires. It's true. If we are only to be led by the Spirit, then why does Paul give those commands? Why doesn't he just assume that the Spirit is going to work in us? Because, friends, that's sometimes how the Spirit works in you. The Spirit has not just been given to you so that he only speaks to you and only uses internal desires to bring about change. The Spirit can likewise use external pressures to move us internally so that when we read the Word of God, things that we might not want to do before, all of a sudden the Spirit convicts us of that, not because He brings it up to us, but because we read it externally. We are convicted when friends, when co-laborers in the gospel, when brothers and sisters in Christ come to us and say, brother, you can't do that. Then the Spirit convicts us and moves in us. These are all works of the Spirit. They work internally, even if the pressure that comes upon them is external. Perhaps it's better to think of it this way. If we desire to follow the law, we are excluded from the work of Christ because Jesus completed the use and the need of the law. If we are excluded from the work of Christ, then you have no Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, then you are pursuing holiness wholly on the basis of your own sinful desires. And you can never be holy through that. If we have the Spirit, we do not need the law. You are bound to the law no longer. It's not that we can't gain from it or that we can't learn from it, but we are no longer bound to it. To kind of give an illustration, when you come to the 10th commandment and it says, you are not to covet, you read that as somebody who knows that in their life they have been pulled toward coveting. And you say, I, I can't do that anymore. I, I've got to leave off my coveting. I've got, to, I've got to try to straighten up my desires in life. Tell me, is that a work of the law? Or is that a work of the Spirit in you? It is a work of the Spirit in you, given to you by Christ. Let us walk then by the Spirit, and by that Spirit put to death the works of the flesh. It's tempting for us to think of the law simply as moral instruction, 
but I frankly think that this misunderstands the nature of the law, and it misunderstands the temptation for many in the early church. The lure for people who were in the early church is that the law provides a very handy system by which all parts of their life can be summed up. We compartmentalize. Listen, people in the first century did not compartmentalize. Religion and civics and personal morality were not like separate issues. They were all bound together. The law provides a system by which they can live. It covers everything. It gave them community guidelines, rules for how to handle those internal problems. It gave them moral instruction, religious instruction. And the reliance that Paul puts on the Spirit is dangerous in that way. How are we supposed to handle these things? How are we supposed to gain the information that we need? When we have internal disputes, how are we supposed to figure out who is right? How are we going to deal with moral matters? How are we supposed to worship God? But in time, the Spirit would respond to all of those challenges. He would aid those questions through the giving of the New Testament. He would help believers through the gifts of conviction and repentance of their sin. And what's more, he would make it impossible for Christians to rely upon themselves. As he dwelt in them, as he moved in them, they would be all the more needing to perfectly and totally rely upon Christ for everything. And he would give them conviction that they could do just that. That Christ would be faithful to them in their sin to forgive them. That Christ would be faithful to them to lead them and guide them. That he would be faithful in them, to them, to continue to strengthen them and move them toward more Christ-likeness. So friends, we walk by the Spirit and we trust that we no longer need the law. We are no longer bound to it, but we are bound and united to Christ. Therefore, Let us, by the work of the Spirit, bear fruit for God in our lives. Let's pray. Father, let us not long for that which is old, but strive for the good which Christ offers to us. He has given satisfaction for our sins by his death. He is the new and eternal king of a better kingdom. And his Spirit leads us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. May we be be led by your Spirit always. Give us conviction to do what is good and right, repentance when we fail, faith in Jesus for our forgiveness, and love for one another. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.